Hello and welcome to The Found Cause, where we found our cause and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right, your left is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And we are teeny tiny today because we're doing another response video, and if you can tell by the title of the video, of course, but also this person in the, the headscarf, yes, we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. Sebastian, have we already done this, like, a lot? Not really, in my opinion. We have done videos on Eastern Orthodoxy, but something prompted this video. There's this recent documentary you can call it two hours long it's very good it's called the failure of eastern orthodoxy it is done by this pastor man i believe he's in utah mm -hmm. and i forget the last name it's jason but i forget the last name even james white has noted it's pretty good uh, and other pastors have also seen it goes over all the key differences between protestantism and eastern orthodoxy and how historically they have made up a lot of their beliefs such as the veneration, for example, the veneration of icons, as you can see the whole church behind <clears throat> behind us or in front of these ladies in a church is full of icons. Goes historically over all the development of doctrine in a church and how in many cases is unbiblical. So that's what prompted this. I figured if Eastern Orthodoxy, if Eastern Orthodoxy is becoming more popular, it's worth definitely spending time and talking about it. I have you've all seen my books that I have an Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm ready to quote them, should I need to. So please don't think that I'm just going... I mean, I am going off the cuff for a lot of these things, but I do come prepared to talk about um, their beliefs and quote them directly. Yeah, and we've done like more in-depth conversations on Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, but like Sebastian said, I was also prompted by that same thing. Sebastian showed it to me. I saw it on James White's podcast, and that's really good. Uh, I... I think of myself as somebody who knows decently enough about Eastern Orthodoxy, enough to talk about it, enough to do response videos to Eric Alharb and other random strangers that believe in Eastern Orthodoxy online. Uh, but this is like kind of a fun fact documentary in case you're kind of familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy, but you want to know some of their more depraved things. <laughs> that's where I go. Uh, so without further ado, we are reacting to what now, Sebastian? This channel is called Theoria. It is Eastern Orthodox, of course, and it is... Fairly, fairly uh, big, in my opinion, has a lot of views, and it's in English, which is important since there are other Eastern Orthodox people that come from Eastern Europe and or Greece as well, or the Balkans, so their content is not as accessible. Yeah. So that's why I like this channel, because it presents Eastern Orthodoxy to an English audience. Yeah, it's not a very popular religion in a place that speak English, so I'm, I'm happy for them speaking it in a language that I understand. That we, we thought about a video that it was all translated and uh, kind of lame. So without further ado, five differences between orthodoxy and evangelicalism. I have to say, small footnote here, um, why do they get to call themselves orthodox? And why do the Catholics get to call themselves Catholic? Like, it's Roman Catholic. These guys are Eastern Orthodox, not Orthodox. And yes, they stole the name. Orthodoxy means right, means proper, right? The mm -hmm. correct religion. So it's like the Mormons calling themselves the Church of Jesus Christ, right? They're not the Church of Jesus. I'm in the church of Jesus. You are in a cult, right? Like, I'm not. You, you can't steal it. So they stole orthodoxy, just like Catholics stole the word Catholic, which means unified. Um, whatever. Small gripe. Orthodox worship is liturgical, but evangelical worship tends not to be. There are a handful of evangelical churches that are liturgical, like some Lutherans, for instance, but most are not. Most are now doing worship with contemporary music, largely speaking, the services focused on the sermon. 
But in the Orthodox Church, most of our worship is liturgical. And what that means is that our services are largely sung and they are largely prayer and there are ritual actions and ritual words and lots and lots of scripture reading, lots and lots of scripture being used as... I'm just going to pause him here to say it's not really what liturgical means. Liturgical means you have a liturgy, an order of things that you do in service and you always do it the exact same way. And if you're in a Protestant church, you're like, yeah, we... Of course, everybody has a liturgy. Of course, everybody has a liturgy. Mm-hmm. You, you big junko. Um, your liturgy, the Eastern Orthodox liturgy, is an insane, ritualistic, um, meaningless liturgy that somebody a thousand years ago thought of and nobody cares about today. And so, yes, it's you could call it more focused on the liturgy because it's literally the only thing you're focused on during the liturgy because it's so complicated and you just got to make sure you do step two after step three. Whereas the Protestant liturgy is like five steps long, right? Because the content of the liturgy is what's important, not the not the steps themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the fact that he put that first of all as the number one difference shows you where their focus is, um, which is on inane liturgy, um, not on the content of the liturgy. So like he said, there's scripture readings, but do they read at home? No. In fact, a video we've skipped here um, has an Eastern Orthodox person saying that you really don't need to read at home. That Protestants read at home, but Eastern Orthodox read in church. As if Protestants <laughs> don't also read the Bible in church. Um, anyways, that's my little tangent on, we all have liturgies. My my church's liturgies, everybody has liturgies. It's just not necessarily meaningless rote ritual, which um, some, like he said, some <laughs> Protestant churches have meaningless rote ritual where people go... <laughs> First, tap your left shoulder and then put your your heel in and then dance around and light the candles. Um, But most have a a meaningful Mm -hmm. liturgy because that's what's important, isn't it? Meaning? It is. It is. Now, I find it interesting that he says we have real liturgy and then some have contemporary music. I would say be careful. Be very careful because when John Chrysostom wrote his liturgy in the around 400s, more or less, don't, don't hate me on that, the exact date. That was contemporary for the time. The music that he made for the church was contemporary for the year 400. Mm-hmm. Just because it's been fossilized over time and preserved, it looks ancient because, I mean, literally is. But if you went back in time, it would have been contemporary music that's sung at Eastern Orthodox or Catholic churches. Right. And I think that's okay. I like I like choirs. I like um, chants. They all have their place, but... I think that it's perfectly fine to worship God in a way that is appropriate in the modern age as well. So music can be different. And that's not to say that there aren't Protestant churches that worship poorly, because of course there are Protestant churches that worship poorly where everybody gets basically naked and they sing secular songs. Okay, that's that's not good worship. Um, But I would say basically as bad. Maybe, maybe a slower burn bad than the fast burn, like crazy getting naked um, <laughs> type of singing is singing that you don't understand and that you don't care about. And if it's just all about emotion, it's not about the actual meaning mm-hmm. of the words. What are you really worshiping? Feelings or God himself? And uh, we should be worshiping God himself, not our feelings. That is a great point. In Russia, at least, I have it on. I've had many friends that were from Russia and they they could not understand a, a huge part of the liturgy of the liturgy itself because it was in church Slavonic, which was pretty it's pretty much medieval Russian not even medieval it's before medieval Russian so it would be like us having our uh, either Baptist Presbyterian or Lutheran church service in medieval English in like Anglo-Saxon 
right? So it's not even not even like Shakespearean English, but like old English, like not understandable. Um, it's it's bad. And like you just mentioned, Sebastian, I, mean, I think it's obvious. Somebody made this liturgy at some point. Like you said, mm-hmm. John Christostom made a liturgy at some point because you, you need to have a liturgy when you go through church. You need to have an order you do things. And he just made it. It's not like he got a divine mandate from on high that this is how you should do it. It's not like it's based off of something from the Old Testament or anything like that. It's just the liturgy that he mm-hmm. made. And like Sebastian also mentioned, the music was just what music they sang back in the 400s. And I'm I'm all for being slow to change because you don't want to change with no reason, right? You don't want to <laughs> change just because it's 2023. Um, I get it. And, and I think there are Protestant churches that fall into the habit of saying we need to do something different just because it's modern age. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, you cannot holify, you cannot um, make law things that aren't law. That's pharisaical. And so when you make a liturgy, holy liturgy, when it's not in the Bible— you have just pharisized the church. You just made the church into a pharisaical extra tradition to the gospel's object. So the liturgy being number one thing for the Orthodox, first of all, boo, lame. Second of all, bad. <laughs> like they have bad liturgy. They think they have great liturgy. It's bad liturgy. Um, there you go. That's what I got to say about that. Prayer and the sermon, uh, which is not a feature of every single Orthodox service. I'm sorry to pause it again just to keep (laughs) harping on the liturgy, but um, I am fully in support of the fact that the Bible does not give us a liturgy. So when Protestants are used to a sermon, worship songs, and some sort of blessing at the end, I get it. That's That's not biblical. It's not like that comes straight from the Bible. So you can riff on that a lot. But if you're not reading the Word of God somehow or teaching on the Word of God in the service, what are you doing? Because... The word of God is how we know God. And songs written about God are just extra. So if you keep all the sprinkles, but you don't have the actual ice cream, like why, that's <laughs> that's bad practice. So there's many fine, totally acceptable ways to do church, but you gotta be making the Bible the center somewhere. Yeah. So if you don't have a sermon, like what are you doing? Yep. Is usually a much lesser part of the service. We believe that holiness can reside in physical places and objects. Most evangelicals would probably not affirm that idea, although I think it's probably not a teaching for most of them that they would say that holiness doesn't, doesn't reside in physical stuff. But for the Orthodox, we have a sense that God's presence exists in certain places and certain objects. This is going to look very different with Orthodox in the U.S. than in Eastern Europe or Greece. Mm-hmm. Over there, they are very zealous and certain going to certain holy places to feel the energies and experience the energies of God. We've gotten this on a d- detailed video, essence, energy, distinction. Interesting point of conversation. Let's have some other points, sure. That in, 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 in short, the energies of God are aspects, attributes, if you want to call it, use other words. Keep it simple. Attributes of God that we can experience that are God himself. And then the essence of God, humans will never be able to comprehend or experience at all. Like being uh, omnipotent. I don't think in heaven we're going to be able to just snap our fingers and then uh, a cow or gold appears in front of us. I don't think. I don't think either, yes. So, but we experience love. I think we will be in perfect love with each other and Jesus Christ, the Father and Holy Spirit in God's kingdom. So God is the... Love is is an energy of God. We can experience it. He invented, quote unquote, love. It's part of him. 
and we experience it, but omnipotent, we will never be omnipotent. So that's energy assistance. My point being, in some in Eastern European countries, they say that some churches you can experience the energies of God more than in other in other churches. So you go to those special churches, you go to those sacred um, uh, sites where they have an, an icon there, or sometimes it's not a statue in Eastern Orthodoxy, but an icon for sure. And this is a holy place. Like in Jerusalem, where in Petra, your wife was saying that this is the rock where Jesus bled. So a lot of people go there to rub a piece of cloth, hoping to get some of the blood on that cloth because it's a special place. Which, let's be real, and you may, if you're like a normal person that doesn't have a lot of um, Eastern Orthodox knowledge beforehand, you might be like, this point, his point, we believe that God's presence exists in certain places and objects. Um, what in the world does that have to do with energies and um, essence like Sebastian just suddenly veered off into a red herring thing. This this point, so God's presence exists in certain places and objects is very plain English. I'm glad that uh, Theoria is saying it this way because this is the problem, the problem point, the difference point between Protestants and Orthodox and that the Eastern Orthodox, like Sebastian said, have holy places and holy objects and in service you saw those kids like kissing the little pictures, the icons is what they call them, the pictures of saints. Um, they are idolaters. They, they worship objects and places. And the excuse they give to be able to worship the, the icons, which people have been doing for millennia prior to Christ and now post-Christ in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the excuses they give are myriad. And one of the most common excuses is to shoot a bunch of words that you don't understand and don't have any concept of right over your head to say, oh, you don't understand. We aren't worshiping these images. Um, we uh, we're worshiping the energy of god or whatever like so that's why sebastian is defining their weird terms they use the word energy and they use the word essence for for like god's like you said his attributes and his being um, and then they say that they're not making these the, the being of things they're not worshiping they're worshiping attributes about god that are present in mary or present in the angels or the saints and that um, they're not worshiping these images, they're serving them. And they'll split two Greek words and say they are... Proskunesis and dulia or latria. Right. So they're, they're not um, proskuneo. They're not worshiping, they're not prostrating themselves mm -hmm. in front of images, even though they may prostrate themselves for the images, which beats me. Um, they're, they're just serving them. They're not worshiping them because latria... Is the Latin word or proskuneo? Yeah, in the Greek. Yeah, I can go, I can I can over, I can go over it. I was mm -hmm. I was doing. See, I did I did prepare a few things on on the topic because this was controversial in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's worth taking time on this, so please hear me out. And oh, and also I just want to clarify. So the essence and energy it's exclusive for God, and the way they justify um, praying through through keyword through an icon so they're like they're worshiping god not we're not worshiping the painting we're worshiping god through the painting just like how you're saved through faith you know faith is the means like the icon is the means to like it's like a gate to heaven i want to i just want to use the language that they use so then we can easily dissect it and evaluate does it actually hold any value mm -hmm. i say no second council uh, second council of nicaea 787 they were meeting to undo a previous council that had more bishops called the Council of Yedia in 754. On, I, that, that was an iconoclastic council. Second Nicaea, they met to 
permit and officiate the veneration of icons. Meaning know. the church in 754 had previously banned, the Eastern Orthodox Church had banned the crazy idolatry. No more worshiping yes. of all the pictures, right? Uh, it's, it's evil, which it is. But lots of rioting over the decades had this flip back and forth and back and forth. And so they finally did decide that icons were not only legit, but require you gotta kiss the icon. Yes. You gotta do it. Um, yeah. Which just seems very Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? You, you gotta worship the statue. Yes. Anathema to those who do not salute with reverence and affection the holy and venerable images. Second Castle of Nicaea. Anathema to those who apply the word of holy words of holy scripture which were spoken against idols to the venerable images. Anathema to those who say that Christians have recourse to the images as to gods. Anathema meaning you are damned to hell. From Galatians, how do they justify it? John of Damascus, pretty famous person that justified the veneration of icons, tried to say that first thing, first thing that we're not worshiping, which is latria or dulia, we're doing uh, proskunesis, which is veneration. Problem with that is if you read the Old Testament, you know I love the Greek Old Testament, Michael. It's pretty good. It's pretty handy. It's pretty handy. If you read the Greek Old Testament. Exodus 20, verse 5, in one verse, both words are used. Proskunesis and uh, latria. They say proskunesis, remember, proskunesis to icons and saints and angels. Latria, God alone. In verse 5, it says, you shall not bow down to idols. Proskunesis. And nor shall you serve them. Latria, latreuses. Well, you shall not bow down to idols, you shall not serve them. You shall not do proskunesis to one, you shall not do proskunesis, eh, latria to do the same. It seems to me that the words are interchangeable. Right. If you don't believe me, Revelation 22, and this is the Apostle John, he's overwhelmed by all the things he's seeing, and in, in verse 9 he says, I fell down and worshipped at the feet of the angel. That's proskunese. The work he's doing, I worship the angel, venerated the angel. The angel says, don't do that. Worship God alone. Worship God. Proskuneson, uh, Worship God. Venerate God alone. I mean, to me, this is crystal clear that the Bible says you should only venerate God. You shouldn't venerate anything else other than God. Not places, not objects, not images. Um, the The key counterpoint here that any Christian that has read the Bible or even heard about the Bible knows is after the Ten Commandments, which say you should not bow down to any images, don't make graven images, it's from Exodus 20 that Sebastian just quoted, is an obvious refutation of iconism. Iconism? Iconodules, those are people who are love. People Mm -hmm. who love icons. Yes. and this John, St. John of Damascus, St. Saint John of Damascus from the Eastern Orthodox Church that was so pro-worshipping images said that, oh, you don't have to worry about the old law because Jesus did away with the old law. Now we got the new law. And Christians worship images, right? Yeah. Which so, is crazy because, yeah. one, Jesus did not do away with the, with the law. It was always his law, and he fulfilled it. But tell me how he fulfills not worshipping images. I will tell you what he said. He did say, just like how Christ either did away or fulfilled, I forget the exact language that he used, fulfilled the law of the Sabbath, likewise he fulfilled the law, or let's just say fulfilled for this even to play along with there, with his excuse, fulfilled the law on, you shall not make any graven images. Therefore, he will go on, John, John of Damascus will go on and say, because Christ took on human form, 
God, the omnipotent, eternal God, took on human form. Therefore, it is acceptable for us to use physical matter to depict the infinite. Yeah, which is um, crazy because <laughs> we also <laughs> believe that Jesus came in physical form and we're not anti-physical form people. Clearly, here we are in the physical form. God has made the physical world. No Gnosticism there. Um, but God did not change the law. He fulfilled the law. So like with the Sabbath, now he is our rest, right? That's So we still fulfill the Sabbath law. It's not that the Sabbath law didn't change. It didn't go away. It was fulfilled in Christ. Like it's still the same Sabbath law. It's just now fulfilled in Christ. So in the same way, the not worshiping images thing, is it now like explain to me how it is fulfilled and not just put away like the sabbath law wasn't put away it was fulfilled in christ how is the not worshiping image thing the answer is it's not just like murder hasn't been put away now we can murder whoever we want like murder is still like crime because it's still Mm -hmm. against the law of god it's not fulfilled in christ in any way that's that would be um making you not that would make you want to murder now um anyway so so the israelite example still works here and the israelites right after the law was given made an image of God and they said, this is God. Of course, it's a golden cow, mm-hmm. which is not God. So like, you know, big fail there. But even if it had <laughs> looked like Jesus himself, right? Or some some version of God that was more accurate than a golden calf, it still wasn't good because that's not God. That's an idol. And people use idols all the time to justify things. It's like, the idol just told me, you know, God just told me that we should do something that you totally shouldn't. I mean, there's reasons. God knows all the reasons um, that he said, don't create idols. So even though they intended to call the idol Yahweh, um, they already started calling it the gods, multiple gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So already with the idol came mm-hmm. a misunderstanding of God. And when Israel breaks off of Judah, um, they do the same thing. Two golden calves. These are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt, Yahweh. Um, idolatry and a misunderstanding of God. Mm-hmm. And what do the Orthodox do? They say, this is Jesus painted by, uh, here's Mary too. It's painted by St. Luke himself. Um, they actually do say that. He's the God that saves you. And then everybody goes, ah, oh, yes, there he is. And then they say a bunch of false things about said Jesus in their idol. So it is the exact same kind of idolatry. Um, and they think that saying it's the true God and not a fake God helps them. But first of all, half the time it's a saint, not actually God. And then in the other half of the time, even if it's God, it doesn't save you because that's exactly what the Lord killed Israelites for in the Old Testament. Anyways, long, 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 long treatise on we believe that god's presence exists in certain places and objects being wrong so this is indeed a difference between eastern orthodox and evangelicals and they are viciously wrong on it this is like the most red flag like it's everywhere in the church so easy to see i don't think it's the most important thing that they're wrong in but it's like so obviously wrong that it is literally on your face the moment you walk in every single square foot of the church is covered in icons every single one at least that i've been to and we don't deny that god's presence exists in people We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit in us. But this bones of St. John of Damascus I'm holding in my hands, that doesn't have... You can't experience the energies of God through the bones of St. John of Damascus or any cross or any... And evil practices like idolatry also, of course, negative negative God energy are not the positive. (laughs) For evangelicals, interpretation of the Bible can, can take multiple forms, but largely speaking, the way that your average evangelical interprets the Bible is by simply reading it and and asking himself the question, what does this mean to me? For an Orthodox Christian, Bible reading, Bible interpretation are largely found primarily in the midst of church services. So for us, that's the normal context. So there you go. 
largely we don't read it at all. Somebody else reads it for us while we're snoozing in the back or like small incense, which is uh, never a good sign, frankly. And if you look at history, actually, especially long before people could own their own Bible, that's the place where most people were able to contact scripture at all, have any kind of connection with it. They used to not have toilets too, and we appreciate toilets these days. So God has blessed the world with more available Bibles for you to read. It's more and more available. Remember that Jesus himself wouldn't have had access straight up to the Word of God to read. He would have to go get the scroll, just like he does when he preaches in his hometown. He gets the scroll of Isaiah from the synagogue, and he reads it out loud. He was intimately familiar with the scriptures, even though it was holed up in the local synagogue. So, so too should any Christians be, mm -hmm. even if they don't have access, direct access to the Bible, they should be hungry for it. Yeah, not just be snoozing in the back while the priest says his line that he says every week. Mm -hmm. There is one statement that I do agree with him. A lot of evangelicals or Protestants in general, they do say that, what does the Bible say to me mm. now? I personally think that is not a good question to be asking. Rather, is you should be asking, what did God mean to say right. back then? And by putting yourself in the context of those people who were back then, I mean, just being too big, big, a little bit gentle on this guy on, on my end. If you put yourself on the feet of someone who lived 2,000 years ago and is receiving these letters from Paul, receiving these letters of John or the Gospels, mm -hmm. what is God saying to that audience? Then you can apply it to yourself. So that's yeah. a ge gentle correction for modern Protestants that sometimes it's too self-centered. And I think most modern Protestants, but I'm going to say most Christians everywhere, just because people aren't that interested in history, most modern Protestants don't really care about the history or mm -hmm. know it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they don't look to what ancient Christians thought about the text. They're thinking, what do I think about it now? Mm -hmm. um, which, I'll say, more balanced, thoughtful Protestants do think about history. Yeah. Of course, me and Sebastian think about church history all the time. And so we think about what the church fathers of the past thought about passages, but it's not, it's not the way we interpret scripture. We shouldn't, at least. I mean, not to say that we're not colored by tradition, because of course we are. Everybody is. Mm -hmm. um, but just because a church father had an opinion on right. a piece of scripture does not mean it is the proper interpretation of scripture. We always take it at its actual merits, and it's a good sign if a lot of church fathers think something about a text that that's probably what the text means. Um, but that's just uh, indicator, not not the rule. Yes. The second thing I would say on this, because he did in, he did make it fair game, is like the church is the one who interprets and reads the Bible to the congregation. And they would say, a lot of orth modern Orthodox would say that the church has had a constant belief going back to the days of Jesus, hence why they say we are the true holy apostolic church going back to the times of the apostles. The problem is their beliefs have changed a lot over time. It's, it's as dumb as saying that the views of my particular church right now are what the churches believe for 2,000 years. Yes, many of the beliefs are, but the church 2,000 years ago wasn't playing with electric guitars. And if I was like, that's, that's what St. Luke was doing back in the day. He had his electric guitar and he had the pulpit up front and the pews. Ah, the pews. And they were anointed by God, those pews. Um, I'd be crazy because, of course, they didn't have pews or electric guitar or probably the same style of sermons we did today. In fact, we kind of know. We know otherwise they did not. But equally, we know otherwise that they did not do the weirdo Eastern Orthodox services. They did not have the icons everywhere. They didn't have the Holy of Holies um, block between the, the priests and the people. They didn't have all these crazy robes they wear. So, like, all the things that they do are totally novel, modern, um, mm -hmm. not from the ancient church. So um, we both modify the church service. They're not the ancient faith as much as we aren't the ancient faith. Um, we should be, if they were really Christians, which we, we don't believe they are, um, we should be part of the same ancient faith 
spiritually because we both believe in the core of the gospel even if we have some tertiary things different like electric guitar or pews um, but they have abandoned the gospel along with adding a bunch of idolatry and sin to their mm -hmm. procession is they heard it read out loud in church services but the key thing is, is that for the orthodox we have a sense of what the bible means within the scope of our tradition our history our church services the ecumenical councils what the the church fathers have said Oof, you see this lineup here? This is Chrysostom, Chrysostom. lineup. I, it's Chrysostom, so it's, it's not this, but this I cannot help but think of the Mishnah, of the, oh, the, the Jews, Jewish yeah. interpretations, where they have the Bible, Old Testament Bible, you know, it's not that big, and then they've got libraries of pharisaical tradition, of, of mm -hmm. church father, of Jewish father tradition. That's huge, 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 huge. And it was already big in Jesus' day, and it's only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And... Of course, people write things all the time, so any library is going to be large. If you take everything somebody's written about the subject into account, um, we don't. You know, we just, nobody can because the libraries are huge. You know, Chrysostom, look, he's filling out a whole, whole several volumes bigger than the Bible on the Bible. So if you truly were going to take every single church father's um, tradition on a subject, you would be reading for endless days, like Jews do. Jews read like endless amounts of commentary mm -hmm. on um, the Torah, and so. Uh, this is so the folly of the Jews that it's embarrassing that they're also like, we don't, we read the Bible, but only in the light of tradition after tradition after tradition after tradition after tradition, meaning they don't really read the Bible. They really read church tradition, right? M most likely they don't read any of it. They just hear what the their local priest has to say and say, okay. <laughs> That's what's true. Everything else is a lie, which is not a good way of going about things because the priest is just a man, not God. Right. And again, tradition has changed a lot over time. Just from what I read in the, as they call it, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, Second Nicaea, 787, there were only 308 bishops in attendance promoting veneration of icons. The previous council that called itself the Seventh Ecumenical Council, they're trying to undo each other, the idea had 338 bishops. There were more bishops in the council against icons than in the one pro icon. To me, that says a huge percentage of the population didn't believe in the veneration of icons, and so what is something something has changed. Yeah. What does tradition really support, right? Yeah. Yep. And also, just to, uh, I find it fascinating. I think you do too, Michael. That on the. Book of Revelation, of a commentary from Andrew of Caesarea. He is pretty much the biggest Eastern Orthodox commentator on the Book of Revelation. Had it not been for him, according to the translator of the of the book, which is Eugenia Scaravellis Constantinou, a Greek lady married to an Orthodox priest. Again, she's in full. She wasn't full. She's dead, I think. Full communion with the Eastern Orthodox. She claims in the book. And with sources as well, that had it not been for Andrew's commentary, the Eastern Orthodox would have given the boot to the Book of Revelation. And don't take my word for it. In I'm pretty certain that in Eastern Orthodox liturgies, the Book of Revelation is not read either by the layman or the clergy, like at all, because it was all it's been in doubt. Those liturgies were made back in the 500s when it was they were still questioning the Book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. it makes sense why it's not in the liturgies, because if they were questioning, what would they put in the liturgies back? And the liturgies that we have are from the 500s, right. 600s. So uh, something something has changed. And also 
had it not been for this tradition that they that they so much so much emphasized they would not have the book of revelation which tells me that they put a lot of emphasis on church fathers and tradition over reading the actual yeah. word of god it's it's just it's so so much a hallmark of the pharisees that jesus called out and that you still see today in the jewish community that you'd think it would trigger some high red flag alarms in the eastern orthodox people and they're like having to filter everything through huge huge tomes of quote-unquote tradition um but you know they also the red red alarms are probably going off and they have all the icons everywhere uh, there's a lot of things that probably yeah. should be triggering something in the priests that do not <laughs> those saints that interpret the bible so the question of what does this mean to me while it's important my own opinion my own sense of what it means is not the most important thing for me as an orthodox christian for me it's not the most important thing for me to know what I think about the Bible. Still, they're like, we're not centered on the self, guys. We're, we're centered on the self. <laughs> like, we're not like those gross Protestants who have to sit under a tree and read the Bible and ask, what does this mean about to me? Um, we sit in church and say, what does this mean to me? And they both are self-interpretation. It's dumb. Catholics say the same Unlike evangelicals, the Orthodox believe that there is actually just one church, and that church is governed through uh, an episcopacy. That is, no, it depends on what you define church. But evangelicals would also say there's one true church. It's just the invisible church, and there's a lot of different branches of it. Um, Eastern Orthodox these days, I thought were kind of hand in hand that other groups are possibly part of the same church, right? So they have the exact same concept of this invisible church across multiple branches. Um, they're shaking the old stick you know they got the new stick which is yes catholics are also brothers in christ and armenians are also brothers in christ and the georgians are also brothers in christ and mm -hmm. maybe even the russians right they've got that's the new stick um the old stick was oh you guys are heathens we're still big you know back in the 800s there was only two churches and, and we're the big one and you guys are the wrong one um so this line here that the orthodox believe there's only one church only one church um is the same as the evangelicals if you're shaking the new orthodox mm -hmm. stick it's only different if you're shaking the old one. And the old one's kind of proven to be false because the one true church has gotten quite small and retarded um, since 800 AD. Yes, and if we all recall, the first official schism that has remains to this day in any Christian church was the Eastern Orthodox because they'll say we have been united, the true church ever since the time of the apostles and Rome left us. Did we all forget about the Copts in Egypt and Syria and Armenia? <laughs> like they're they're called the Oriental Orthodox because they claim to be the real Orthodox. Right. I mean, I think it's kind of ironic that the, the ones who claim we are the actual true, the Catholics are fake, you know, all of those are a bunch of imposters. They had the first schism out of all their big churches. What about the Nestorians? Like you're like schism number four, man. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. You're late to the party. Bishops with apostolic succession. That is that that historical genealogy of sorts. From I, I just, <laughs> it's like we have apostolic succession and then they show what they're actually doing in church. I just think it's a great um, juxtaposition because we, we have apostolic succession. Then they show this joke, this sham that's happening at every Eastern Orthodox church where he's got like these triple wielding three candles in each hand and he's, he's smacking them on the people and people have got the gigantic hats. <laughs> And then he's got a huge crown on his head with a million different icons and jewels everywhere. Freaky, you know, I'm Emperor Palpatine robes, gigantic um, icon in front of him. Icons literally everywhere, all made of mahogany or gold. I'm going to take a guess 
and say that that's not what the apostles instituted. And what's funny is that this guy will probably also admit, yeah, this is not what the apostolic church looked like, but we still have apostolic secession. We just don't do what the apostles did, which to me, it doesn't matter if you have apostolic succession, um, if you have abandoned what the apostles teach. And th this is not what the apostles teach. So um, you, especially if you're comparing yourselves to Protestants, where you're pointing at the Protestants and saying, you don't have apostolic succession because you don't do what the, what the apostles teach. And then we're like, <laughs> you, you don't do what the apostles teach. And we think we are following the core of what they teach. And we stripped all the tradition out. There's always going to be traditions that we really haven't, but we're trying. Um, you guys aren't even trying. You're like embracing the tradition as apostolic authority, which it does not have. So great, great um, visual for him saying that they have apostolic authority. Uh, yes. Ultimately, they have the same problem as Catholicism, that it's sola ecclesia. It is the church alone. So what is tradition? What the church says? What makes up the Bible? What the church says? Rather than what history says, rather than what the majority of people say, rather than, like you said, what the Bible says, it's what the church says. Mm -hmm. in, in defiance of all the rest. From the apostles down to our bishops in our own day. Uh, the average evangelical, his church is governed congregationally, even if he does belong to a part of a denomination. And so the local congregation tends to have the highest say in most matters. But for the Orthodox Church, our authority is based in, in our bishops, uh, whom we believe have this succession from the apostles. Uh, I mean, I'm going to say a very Protestant thing right here, but it is based in the Bible, and that is the priesthood of all believers. So, yeah, I mean, there, there are many polities that aren't congregationally run in the U.S. I don't really know where he's getting that, because um, it's not even that popular of a government form in the Protestant Church. However, I mean, there are congregational churches. Uh, based on the belief that all Christians have the Holy Spirit and therefore they should have some say in things. Now, I think Paul makes clear that there is levels of authority, so we believe in levels of authority of elders and uh, deacons, but, or maybe even overseers above all those. Sure. Um, but we, we don't hold that bishops or deacons or whoever have um, the only authority, right? Like Christ can speak through anyone, including non-elders. And I'll throw it just for fun here. If you really wanted to, you could trace back our lineage to the reformers who were ordained Catholic priests, who, as you may say, many modern Orthodox people, Catholics are just confused brothers in Christ. And going from whatever Catholic uh, branch they came from, the reformers, going back to the time of the apostles. I mean, by definition, Protestants are in apostolic succession because... Pastors have been ordained from yeah. since the reformers who were ordained by priests who were ordained by what what going by the bishops going down the line all the time to the apostles. So and it's just it's just a silly, silly argument to say that Protestants don't have apostolic succession. Right. There aren't multiple denominations that all are truly Christian in the fullest sense. For us, there's there's only one, and and that's the Orthodox. The Big fullest bro. sense. What does it mean? I guess in my in. My opinion is also that there are not multiple denominations that are fully Christian in the fullest sense because I specifically believe in Reformed baptism and all my specific beliefs. So, I mean, whatever. Anybody can say that. Uh, yeah. Let's ask the Ukrainian Orthodox Church if the Russian Orthodox Church is in full communion. Yeah, fully, fully Christian. I mean, whatever, we, guys. We just saw the, ortho, the Patriarch Kirill of Russia saying pretty much any Russian soldier that dies in battle 
face in fighting Ukraine, the Ukrainian soldiers, will have all his sins forgiven and will enter heaven. He's got to make sure he's had the horn and helmet on and the sword in hand, though. And then right. he'll get the 70 virgins afterwards, something like that. Church. For the average evangelical... This, number five, thankfully, the fifth of the five differences, is actually where we would say... The most important. Yeah, the most important is, and it's where all the other stuff, like you've heard I have strong opinions on their <laughs> other differences, this one is the most important, and all the other ones I would tolerate as a very bad version of a church, but still Christian. This fifth one is the one that makes them apostate. They have left the Christian tradition, the Christian church. They have taken the Christian church and uh, mollified it. They have made it just like the Mormons or anybody else who believes not in the gospel that Jesus Christ came to give, but instead a, a peaceless, merciless, evil gospel that will never save. This this is the problem with the Eastern Orthodox Church, and it's the same problem with the Catholic Church. Even though they are different churches, they fall into the same trap here at number five. So we'll see what he has to say. Well, salvation means what happens to you when you die, that you go to heaven and, and not to hell. For the Orthodox Christian, salvation is about a lot more than that. Yes, we're concerned about what happens to us after we die, but also for us, salvation is a process, actually, rather than a single event, like I was saved on this day or that day, and therefore I'm going to heaven. That's not how we see things. For us, it's a process that uh, begins with the work of God in us, and with baptism, with the sacraments, with the grace of God in us, we're given all the tools that we need to engage in the long-term process of salvation, which is ultimately a work of God, but is only done with, with our cooperation. In other words, God is not going to force us to be saved. What I would want to point out a couple things is that he says all of that as if it's in contradiction to the Protestant belief, as if the Protestants don't believe that you also walk alongside God and grow in his ways and that by the grace of God and works Protestants, unless they are anathema to us, right, unless they are antinomians, which we would anathematize, we also believe that from real faith come good works and that you are slowly given sanctification and grown as a Christian. All of that is true. That's not a difference. They say all of that, Eastern Orthodox, he's not the only one that says this, Eastern Orthodox and Catholics say all of that stuff about being sanctified as a smokescreen for what the real difference is here. Mm -hmm. It's not that the Protestants don't believe in gradual justification or gradual sanctification and that orthodox do we both believe in gradual sanctification the orthodox never believe you are justified until the final day christians believe you're justified by christ and therefore your works aren't what justify you orthodox believe your works slowly but surely get you closer and closer to final justification you never have peace with god you never have peace with God. You never have assurance mm -hmm. of salvation. And ultimately, on the day the Lord declares you either righteous or unrighteous, and you go to heaven or hell, um, he believes, as he just said here, that it's ultimately God's work, but with your cooperation. So the Lord will say, ah, well done, my good and faithful servant. I gave you the talent, and you did well with it. You get into heaven, which is a biblical concept, except remember Christ says that he knows exactly who his sheep are, and he knew when he gave the talents, in the parable of the talents, this servant was given five talents because he was capable. That servant was given two talents because he was capable. And the one wicked servant was given one talent, and he wasted it. Why do you think he was only given one talent? Because he was never God's to begin with. 
Mm-hmm. That one talent is taken away from him and given to the one with the five talents because God gives to those he already gave. God gives more to those who he gave more to. And so this is not a work of our cooperation that he's judging us on. He's actually judging us on the, the person he made us to be from the beginning anyway. So when he judges us on the day of judgment, it's going to be one, purely from Christ that gets us into heaven. But two, it's purely a work of God. Mm-hmm. It's not our cooperation. Like Yes, we happen to cooperate because that's the character that God has made us. But it's all God's blessing. It's all God's work, not our own. There's no ounce of our cooperation that actually earned us heaven. Exactly. And that's all from Ephesians. If you don't mm-hmm. don't take our word for it from in first of Ephesians, when it begins, God predestined us unto salvation through mm-hmm. before the planet was even made, before the world was made, God knew us and predestined us to be adopted into sonship. It's not like you may be adopted or like I may be, since Les says later in First John that maybe we have been adopted to god's family no you have been adopted past tense you are now god's children you have been justified romans 5 you have eternal life first john like you just said it's not that you will have it you have it now yes now let's contrast this with what vladimir loski i have this great book if the eastern orthodox have what catholics have which are doctors of the church this would be a great candidate vladimir loski modern theologian I mean, he's dead, but modern theologian for the Orthodox Church. So he wrote in his book, The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church, page 199. Eastern tradition has always asserted simultaneity in the synergy of divine grace and human freedom. As St. Macarius of Egypt says, the will of man is an essential condition, for without it, God does nothing. In the 19th century, Bishop Theophanes, a great Russian ascetic writer, asserted that the Holy Ghost, acting within us, accomplishes with us our salvation. But he says, at the same time, that being assisted by grace, man accomplishes the work of his salvation. Grace, which according to St. Macarius, permeates the human personality like the yeast in the making of bread, becomes fixed in a man, like a natural endowment as though it were one substance with him. It is this that St. Seraphim calls the acquisition of grace, the subjective aspect of union with God. And to me, I find that horrifying, the terms like the acquiring of grace. Mm-hmm. Seraph- I've read also his book of St. Seraphim of Sarov, a Russian ascetic, that the ultimate goal of a Christian is the acquisition of the Holy Spirit, meaning by the holier you become, the greater access you get to God. Ultimately, Eastern Orthodox would say that, but participating in church sacraments, being a member of the church, participating in the liturgy, all of that, living a holy life, then God justifies you by cooperating with grace. So no, it's not Pelagian. It's not like you make yourself sure. holy without the aid of God. They say, yes, God helps you, but then you've got to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. You're just, God will justify you after all you can do after he initiates the process, of course. Goes against what the scripture says. Hebrews states, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He initiates our faith. Your faith is not from you. God gives you faith. He is the one who imputes righteousness to you. As he says, blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. God instead imputes you with his righteousness, Jesus dying on the cross, and will not impute or charge sin against you any longer. He started that good work, He'll bring it to completion. As he says, he who started a good work in you will see it completed. And what else did I have on on the, on the 
theosis and the process of synth no that's 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 it it's just that that is really what distinguishes distinguishes from eastern orthodoxy from protestantism i'll say this one of the few times that they actually decided to write things down eastern orthodox are no, no, uh, notable for not never defining write. things or it's to stay flexible and never be disprovable if you never write anything down but yes yes they appeal to mysticism and tradition all the time this is what the church has believed because reasons because this is what the church says even though they have changed in 1672 in article article 9 from the synod of jerusalem convened to destroy what a previous patriarch patriarch Kirill, tried to do to reform the eastern orthodox church he wanted to make it calvinist Belief in God's predestination, justification by faith alone through Christ alone. What did they do? Oh, let's just kill this guy because he's annoying and we hate that. So they had him assassinated, you know, conspiring with Turks and Catholic monks, assassinated their own patriarch, and then called a council to anathematize the man. So they anathematized the patriarch that tried to reform. And in Article 9, this, this says from the Synod of Jerusalem, no one can be saved without faith, which is a certain persuasion, and works by love, the observance of the divine commandments. It justifies before Christ, and without it, no one can please God. Article 13. Man is justified, not by faith alone, but also by works. Yep. So it's not like they're hiding it. Catholics kind of try to hide it, um, but not Eastern Orthodox. And we'd say the reason we take that so seriously, seriously enough to call the Eastern Orthodox Church anathema, i.e. not Christian, apostate, not going to heaven, going to hell, is because St. Paul takes it seriously. So you may be sitting at home and saying, oh, why is it really that big of a deal? In fact, Redeemed Zoomer, another YouTube channel, um, Protestant man, tries to be conservative. He said, I don't know that it's a big deal that uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox reject salvation by faith alone. Like, is that really in the Bible? One, of course it's in the Bible. But second of all, the reason it's a big deal is because of Galatians. Like, St. Paul takes it seriously, where he says, if you think, you who are trying to be justified by the works of the law, you are cut off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Like, that's where the word anathema comes from, is that exact line. And he is talking to Judaizers who say you need Christ and works. And of course, we believe that you have Christ and works if you're really a Christian. Of course, you're going to have good works. That's said in James. That's said everywhere. Um, but if you believe that you are justified by Christ and works, i.e. right here, this little subtitle here, it is the work of God with our cooperation, um, you are anathema. You are the Judaizer there. If you may be saying, we don't want to, I don't want to take these two Protestant weirdos any um, with any seriousness, you may say. They're just making things up. They're... I don't want to agree with them at all. They're dumb. I will ignore them. Don't ignore us. I listen to what I will read because this is from John Chrysostom, who was exhorted by the video by the video itself. They show they display all the commentaries from John Chrysostom uh -huh. on Galatians, Galatians chapter three. And see, maybe maybe this this is food for thought. And this Paul removes. Speak, this is speaking on the people that are saying you have to be circumcised in order to be Christian. So yes, mm -hmm. faith in Jesus, hundred percent, but circumcised. Paul says anathema on them. And this Paul removes with great skill and prudence, turning their argument against themselves and showing that those who relinquish the law are not only not cursed, but blessed. And they who keep it, not only not blessed, but cursed. They said that he who kept not the law was cursed, but he proves that he who kept it 
was cursed, and he who kept it not blessed. Again, they, the Judaizers, said that he who adhered to faith alone was cursed, but he shows that he who adhered to faith alone is blessed. And how does he prove all this, Paul mean? For it is no common thing which we have promised, wherefore it is necessary to give close attention for what follows. He had already shown this by referring to the word spoken to the patriarch. In thee shall all the nations be blessed, at a time that is when faith existed, not the law. And in Ephesians, John Chrysostom in his commentary, even faith, Paul says, is not from us. For if the Lord had not come, if he had not called us, how should we have been able to believe? For how, Paul says, shall they believe if they have not heard? So even the act of faith is not self-initiated. It is, he says, the gift of God. And he goes on in Ephesians, John Chrysostom. For by faith alone he has saved us. Instead of a certain manner of life, he brought in faith. For that he might not save us to no purpose, he both himself underwent the penalty and also required of men the faith that is by doctrines. I see a lot of faith alone. You know, I don't think it's just a Protestant yeah. invention. I see John Chrysostom using, you know, faith alone. And I mean, I could, I could even... Uh, go, go on more and John Chrysostom and his commentary of Romans. What is the law of faith? It is being saved by grace. Here shows God's power in that he has not only saved, but has even justified and led them to boasting. And this too, without needing works, but looking for faith only. Right. Faith only, faith alone, have been justified. I mean, it sounds like John Chrysostom is a Protestant. Um, which which shows you that it's not Protestants who are the weird ones. It's Eastern Orthodox, that they have apostatized from the true church. Like the, the Eastern Orthodox Church was Christian mm -hmm. um, until they officially anathematized Christianity, just like the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, I know that some of our Eastern Orthodox commentaries and even Catholic commentaries will say that Galatians, the, the, the only book where we get the word anathema from, right, cut off, where we used mm -hmm. to anathematize each other, right? Everybody's doing that these days and, and back in the Middle Ages. Um, that book they'll say, is specifically talking about circumcision. It's only, when Paul says that, that you're anathema for believing in um, faith and works, that that's only works equals circumcision, not the other works that we talk about. But the works is clearly the works of the Jewish law, which is the only law. Like, that was God's law. It is God's law. And therefore, any of the good works you're talking about today, cooperating with God and doing good works, those good works, they're good because of the good is defined by God's law. So you're still using Jewish law, God's law. So it's the exact same law that includes circumcision. And so we say that, of course, you do good works according to the law, um, but it's not what saves you. And so Paul equally tells Timothy to go get circumcised. So it's not the circumcision that's the problem. It's them thinking they're justified by circumcision that's the problem. So again, Paul doesn't have a real problem with circumcision in and of itself. It's what, he, what these people were claiming circumcision did. And uh, the same people who will say that this is only talking about circumcision and therefore you can't, can't be saved by circumcision will say that baptism is the new circumcision and you have to be baptized. <laughs> you, you are a Judaizer. Like that's, that's exactly what he's calling out in Galatians. Yep. And I would say John Chrysostom would agree with us on this point. In his commentary on Corinthians, he says, God allowed his son to suffer as if a condemned sinner so that we might be delivered from the penalty of our sins. This is God's righteousness, that we are not justified by works. For then, they would have to be perfect. 
Excuse me. Bless you. Which is impossible, but by grace, in which case all our sin is removed. So he's saying, you know, if you, if you try to adhere to the commandments of God, which the Synod of Jerusalem said, you know, we have to be justified by works, which include also in, in, in another, in what's it? Article 9, the observance of the divine commandments. That's the moral law. Mm-hmm. If you say you have to adhere to the moral law, you have to adhere to it all perfectly. John Chrysostom says that is impossible to adhere to the law. And More than John. I mean, James just straight out says that as well. Yeah. Uh, yep. But by grace. That's how you're justified. They're not justified by works, but by grace. So, again, have been justified, past tense. Mm-hmm. John Chrysostom believed in justification, past tense. Like, wow, coincidence. Many Protestants have said, oh, we should just go straight to the Bible for our beliefs. And then, in which case, all our sin is removed. It sounds like John Chrysostom, the great father of the church, read Romans, in which, in which says, Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom God will not charge sin against him. So it's like, it seems like the tradition of the church is actually to just look at the Bible. Yeah. So why don't we go back to that? So I know we've made 50 minutes out of five <laughs> minutes, so we're going to let them roll it out. But you see, this number five was the one. If we're going to spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes on one point, is this one. Yeah. Because this is one where they have left Christianity entirely on this point. So all the idolatry is terrible and all the weaknesses they've shown in their liturgy and whatever else, those are all bad and their obsession over tradition is bad. But this is the one that makes them non-Christians. The other one's tolerable. So uh, the more that we cooperate with God, the more like Him we become. And so for us, uh, salvation is this, this long-term engagement with God there is that no lasts salvation. into eternity. So even after, God willing, we do go to heaven after the resurrection and so forth, uh, we can still become more and more like God throughout the ages. This is often reter- referred to with the technical term theosis. It means that we become more and more like God, although we don't become God, uh, we become more and more like God throughout throughout the ages. And the moaning. So there you go. Theoria. It's an hour uh, to five minutes, like I said, so hopefully it wasn't too bad, but uh, we're passionate about the subject, so each point was a worthwhile point. And I, to his credit, Theoria's credit, these are indeed five differences between orthodoxy and evangelicalism, and he even hit on the one that you need to include. Um, some channels, they act like, especially like secular history channels, mm-hmm. act like the only differences between Orthodox and Catholics and uh, evangelicals are like the hats they wear <laughs> and the, the books, the Bible they include, which are not the important things. Like the important things are, are the things discussed here. So thank you, Theoria, for touching on five important differences, um, including the gospel difference at the very end. So fitting video. Mm-hmm. Which is why we've found our cause. In serving the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm Michael DeVay behind the machine, and to my right has been Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out, if you're interested in, in a better video than this one, you can go check out Ancient Past's video on the failure of Eastern Orthodoxy. Really good documentary. It says way more than we can. Uh, until next time, we talk about something completely different. Thank you for listening. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you might find your podcast on YouTube. Facebook, of course, we're on there to see our beautiful faces. We're also on foundcause.podbean.com if you want to download them and save them to your iPod and listen to them in your Zoom device on a long car drive. I don't know. I don't do that. Uh, We do host it there. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.